Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, five wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health Exclamation Point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, and Susan's latest book, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at the Wise Woman University. But you can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Rebecca. Good evening, Susan. How are you? I am delighted to have my landline back in working order. I was so happy to see it come up on the screen. I was, yeah, me too. <laughs> like, oh, yes, we will have an uninterrupted call with good sound quality. Hurrah. And also, I do not have to be exposed to all all of those electromagnetic frequencies. Oh, my. I'm, you know, certainly one of the people old enough to think of a phone as something that isn't a cell phone. So, uh, 
since I spent a couple of hours with the phone here with the two of us. And I also wanted to just really compliment you, Rebecca, on the amazing quality of the women that you bring to this show for me to talk to and interview. What a fabulous mm-hmm. job you do. Yeah, I'm really excited for tonight's guest. I'm a big fan of the Chalice and the Blade, and uh, Ryan Eisler is going to be a really interesting interview. I'm so be so happy to hear you speak with her. Me too. She is definitely, you know, one of the women who held the torch and um, said to us all, "There's a woman's way of being." And if there if there wasn't in the past, well, there sure will be in the future, and we can create it. And here's how. Hmm. Yeah. I know. I so, just picked uh, up my copy and making my way back through it. It's a pretty dense book, but it's so good. So you're listening so, and want to read. <laughs> so important. When was that published? Mm-hmm. Well, I can I ask think for that. Eight nineteen eighty eight or something like that. I think yeah, I read I just recently. Too, yeah, before before the nineties. Yeah, yeah. I um, I spent I spent the day today inside. I really would have rather been outside after a series of rainy days. It was really beautiful outside today, but I spent the day inside because I got illustrations to put into the book today. Yes, I got (laughs) illustrations, and I started putting illustrations into the book, and I finished an entire chapter and a half, got another one started. So exciting. The illustrations Mm -hmm. are by Durga Durga Bernhardt, and her Uh illustrations are in Healing Wise. Mm-hmm. If you go I to Healing those. Wise and you look at the beautiful, evocative illustrations of the plants, um, those are by Durga. And mm-hmm. I've always, um, she and I have always talked about doing Healing Well together because, of course, it was originally supposed to be like Healing Wise and then Healing Well, the Bobsy Twins there, but all these other books in 20 years somehow have moved between those times actually 30 years so uh, it's very mm-hmm. very exciting exciting to to feel that this how this book is coming together and um, looking to draw people's curiosity into it through the illustrations not to make a point with the illustrations but to attract the eye to come into a curious state. Yeah, and her name is such a a rich name, Durga. You know, it's like the mother goddess, and just that she provides all these like these uh, patterns of like ancient like remembering. You know, so yes, yes, that's just how I feel about her art. Mhm. Yeah. Very cool. Pretty exciting to have a new book coming out. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. And I got but, I got to attend but, uh, my good friend's birth this weekend. During she went into labor on Friday, and I was to be her doula, and she was three weeks early. And so we were supposed to be in Jamaica, and I, I was like, 
okay, another sign of why we, you know, like it didn't work out is, you know, I got to be here and be with her. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, did did I tell you that a past apprentice called me from Jamaica very upset because she hadn't been told that you and I weren't going to be there? Yeah, I think that they only told people that contacted them, which is, I can't believe, yeah, it's a very shady thing to do. <laughs> I was very, I was just stunned. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, I couldn't contact anybody because they wouldn't reveal any of that information to me. So I, ho- I hope that she uh, was able to move through it gracefully. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Pretty shocking to be re- by to be replaced by these women that teach pretty much the opposite in style of herbal medicine too. So, well, not even herbal medicine, but anyway. Well, yin and yang, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty. Uh, so, uh, did have you, you, did you hear any, back uh, from her? Did she move to Jamaica? I have not yet heard back from her, which leaves me feeling a little bit uneasy, but. Hopefully it's because, you know, no news is good news, as my mother, Monica, always insisted. Mm-hmm. Well, I would love to hear her, the rest of her story at some point. Some point. We'll see. But, yes. Yeah. So we do have a couple of callers with their hands raised. If you have a question for Susan, please make sure to press 1 to speak with her. And uh, we'll go to our first caller here in the 416 area code. Hi, Susan. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi. Hi. My name is Anna. I called before, but now I'm calling regarding something else. Um, So the the problem I called for is because I have one gallstone uh, that's almost one centimeter in diameter and Mm -hmm. two small kidney stones. And... um, the problem, I'm not sure if I still have the kidney stones because I drink natal infusion. Uh-huh. But for the gallstone, um, I have pain right mm-hmm. on my right side, just uh, uh, below the rib. Yes. And that pain is almost all the time. There are, of course a lot of herbs that had been used to help people with gallbladder pain. It's a common human affliction. And it hurts. It's not an inconsequential pain. It may not go on for a very long time, but while it's going on, it's, it really takes all of your attention, I'm told. Yeah, yeah. I It was going away for weeks and when it comes back it stays for days or maybe weeks so you have the pain and the pain stays for weeks yes i think that now now that i have the, the pain, pain is not only after, at least pain is week. not only after you eat no no it's pain it's, is all the time day and night not night no so you can but sleep. during you the can... day, during the day, I'm conscious of the pain. But it's not so much as that it keeps you up at night. 
you sound like you're pretty much in a good flow with things. Are there things that you've tried at this point to help your gallbladder? Um, I think so because I I have I the first time I discovered the problem was one year ago, and since then I've been trying to to do everything natural that I know. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, as I said, the pain went away for a long period of time, but it came back since last year when I first discovered. It came back at least two, three times. When And when it came back, it just stays the pain. It doesn't go away in, as you said, like after I eat, but doesn't go away after two hours or three hours. And during this time when it's been coming back, have you tried any herbs that are specific to the liver or the gallbladder, like dandelion? Yes, I am. I am doing. I'm taking dandelion tincture. I'm mm-hmm. trying to after each meal. I may not be very successful after each meal, but I'm. I'm taking at least one teaspoon per day. Okay. My teachers think that taking the dandelion before the meal is more effective. Okay. There is an old tradition throughout Europe of having bitters before you eat. Okay. An aperitif, eh? Yes, yes. And the aperitif is the bitter to get the liver and the gallbladder to cooperate with what's about to happen. Okay. And so they they need it first. Milk thistle seed, or any thistle seed, in fact, is also a wonderful, strong liver ally. I don't know how much it will help your gallbladder, but I know it's excellent for the liver. And when they give milk thistle seed with poisonous mushrooms, the mice who get the remedy before the mushrooms survive much better or they do survive, whereas the ones who get the remedy afterwards die. Okay. So if I start taking... So take your dandelion before you eat. Is it dandelion tincture that you've made with vodka? Yes, I made it myself. Wonderful. You might want to, um, depending on your body, if you have any dandelion vinegar available... You might want to try using that, yes, or even I dandelion wine. Flour. Yes, again, dandelion flower vinegar. Oh, good! Mm-hmm. It's all good. The dandelion flower is perfect. It's all good. Makes good medicine. Any part of it prepared in any way is going to be good medicine. Okay. Uh, One do of you the, um, the vinegar before the meal as well. Yes. Yes. yes, yeah, and you can dilute it in some water or just take it neat or eat it on a salad, whatever works for you. Yeah, usually I put in a salad. Yeah. If I start the milk thistle, should I take that before the meal as well? Yes. Um Yes, if you're I off. do have the seeds. I don't have any preparation of the milk. Uh-huh. Some people grind up the seeds. 
And just take them with a teaspoon? And just put to sprinkle them in food. Okay. They're, they can be kind of bitter, but they're not terrible. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here, this is the herb book by John Lust, and this is his list of herbs that can be useful for people with gallbladder problems. Artichoke, barberry, burdock, celandine, chicory, dandelion, elecampane, garlic. Now, I have elecampane uh, honey. That I mm-hmm. Garlic, gentian, lavender, milk thistle, mugwort, oat straw, onion, peppermint, radish, rosemary, St. Benedict's thistle, wild daisy, witchgrass, wormwood, yellow toad flax. And yarrow. I do have some of the herbs from that list. I even have the wormwood in my garden right now. So one way that you could proceed is to, you know, write down the ones that you have. And sit with those and then go and spend a little time with them and find out if there's one of them that wants to be your ally in your journey. Okay. Right. Certainly one of the ways that herbalism is done is to take a list like that and throw as many things as you have access to into one pot and hope that you got something that will work with you. And in an emergency, I can understand that. But in this kind of situation where you have the time and I hope the inclination to actually develop a relationship with the plant, I think that that's a more interesting thing to do. Yes, I do. I do have uh, the inclination Mm -hmm. for this, Mm -hmm. yes. And so you'll probably keep on taking your dandelion, and then maybe there's one of those other herbs that you want to work with. I was fascinated that he included yarrow. Yeah, I love yarrow. Don't think of yarrow as a liver herb, but of course it's very bitter. And this is for his list for the gallbladder, Susan. It's not for the liver. Maybe yarrow affects the gallbladder and doesn't affect the liver. I had a dear herbal friend who had really severe gallstones. As a matter of fact, she insisted. She finally had surgery, and she had her gallbladder removed, and she insisted they give her the gallbladder. And her gallbladder was so big you could hardly hold it in your hand. And there were gallstones the size of her little finger. Yeah. So she had worked with herbs for as long as she could, and she said at this point... The very best thing is for me to use the herbs to help me get through the surgery. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> You're not I, there I yet. Think, no, no, no. Totally I, hear I'm, that. Yes, I'm definitely going to work more with the herbs. Yes. Uh, a question about the wormwood. I usually just eat like one leaf 
whenever I'm outside. Is there a better way to use it? We humans, like most things that eat plants on this planet, have to break down the cell walls of the plants in order to get nutrition or medicinally active compounds. Our teeth are not strong enough or sharp enough to break those cell walls. Our saliva is not acidic enough, nor does it contain enough of the right kinds of enzymes to break down those cell walls. So basically, any plant that we eat raw, we get nothing from. Okay. Now that said, surely you get intangible things. You get a feeling of connection. You get smell. You get taste. You get... um, I I do not want to neglect in any way those intangible things which you are getting. And I think those are very important, those intangible things. But what I'm saying is that if you are thinking to use an artemisia, like cronewort, also called mugwort, or wormwood, as an ally to help you get through your gallbladder pain, you're going to want it as a tincture. Okay. So if you have wormwood, artemisia, absinthum, which has a kind of blue-green leaf, then it should still be in leaf, and you can make your tincture with your 100-proof vodka. And the artemisia vulgaris, the cronewort and mugwort, is also still in leaf, although as soon as there's a hard frost, it's going to look pretty tattered. And um, you could get some of that as soon as possible if you want to make a tincture or a vinegar. We really like the vinegar of it. The vinegar of the flowering tops seems to be um, probably the, your best bet for right now at this time of the year. Both both uh, Artemisia in vinegar. Right, those are both Artemisia. I can, I can do both. I have both of them in the garden, yeah. Yeah. So the wormwood is considered more poisonous. Okay. Absinthe liqueur, which was illegal for 100 years because it was thought to make people crazy, was made... With wormwood, Artemisia absinthum. Yes, 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 I know. But I can use that one in vinegar as well, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, I use wormwood in very small doses, starting with one drop of wormwood tincture. Okay. And then working up as I need to. And, of course, with the cronewort vinegar, I use it in regular vinegar amounts, teaspoons and tablespoons. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, I understand. And the mugwort tincture, is it useful? Should I The make mugwort, which I also call cronewort, the Artemisia vulgaris, I, it could be tinctured. I prefer it as a vinegar. Okay. Yeah, I can do the, the other, uh, the wormwood in tincture and the mugwort in vinegar because if I cannot use too much vinegar of the wormwood, then... Exactly. I'll have some choices. Yes. It's always good to have choices. Yes. <laughs> and, 
and it's okay. It's okay. And, and, and let me say again, talk to the individual plants. Don't go with your yes. shopping list all laid out. You know, really yes. go and see what's at the market, what looks good, what's talking to you, right? Where where the relationship is. Yes, I I I think these two both are <laughs> close to me. Close. So yes. Yeah. Uh, so the mugwort in, is in flower right now. I can just use it in flower, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. She very much does not like to be called mugwort. She says she has nothing to do with the drunken fantasy okay. people who have their noses in mugs, that she gives the true visions of wise old age, and that's why we should call her cronewort. Cronewort. Okay. Not only that, when you call me mugwort, people confuse me with motherwort. And once I realized that it was cronewort and motherwort, then I also knew I had to find maidenwort. Right? So her turning me on to the fact that she was cronewort opened up this whole other thing to me. It took me some time, but I did finally realize that Stellaria media chickweed was maidenwort. And within the day of my deciding on that, a past apprentice came to visit said she had been studying Chinese medicine, reading The Yellow Emperor, which is an herbal classic that was written 3,000 years ago, which purports to have remedies from 3,000 years before that. Who knows? They could be 6,000 years old or not. At any rate, she said she came across this recipe that she really wanted to share with me. and It was for all women's problems, and it was equal parts. Artemisia vulgaris, Leonurus cardiaca, and Stellaria media. Cronewort, motherwort, and maidenwort. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that, Susan. I love how generous the universe is. Thanks for calling tonight. Green blessings. Thank you. Thank you. Green blessing. Bye. The next caller is coming from the 917 area code. Hello, Susan. This is Jesse. I live down in Beacon, just down the river from you, a little ways. Yeah. Um, and as you know, this year has been an awesome year for mushrooms. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about mushrooms. Um, I've recently found and harvested some turkey tails and some birch polypore. Okay. Along Wonder- with some other, um, you know, culinary mushrooms. But those two are more medicinal. And I haven't heard you speak too much uh, on this show about medicinal mushrooms. Um, maybe um, I haven't been listening long enough, um, but um, I wonder if uh, you have any ways that you like to use those. Let me start by saying that my interest in mushrooms precedes my interest in herbs. Oh, Cool that I spent a lot of time really on my belly in the forests of the Catskills back before global warming when we had a um, weather pattern with beautiful clear mornings and early afternoons and then a hard rain for an hour or two and then beautiful cool evenings and the, the forests were just alive with fungi. Unfortunately, there were no internet. There were no books with color pictures. It took me over a year to realize that the mushroom with its cap down and the mushroom with its cap open were the same mushroom. Mm. So I have always 
had a, a real a deep connection to the mushrooms. And it's very gratified to read that in early studies at Duke University, studies done about 75 years ago, where they took mushrooms and they tried them against cancer cell lines in petri dishes, they found that every single mushroom, including white button mushrooms from the supermarket, was able to kill cancer cells. Mm-hmm. So mushrooms mm-hmm. certainly offer us something that is unique. And that's partly because they inhabit a world that is very different from the world that plants and animals inhabit. One of the major teachings that I carry is the giveaway breath that plants and people breathe together. We give the plants our breath and they give us their breath. And because of this, our communication is pretty clear if we can avoid projecting onto the plants our own ideas and emotions. But as I often tease, a mushroom is not breathing with us, and a mushroom that says, hey, want to come to a party, has your death in mind, because that's what <laughs> mushrooms do, right? Mushrooms deal mm-hmm. in Mushrooms are the cleanup crew. Mm-hmm. Mushrooms say, hey, look at that. It's dead. All right, munch, munch. <laughs> so we have yeah. to be a lot more careful when yeah. we're dealing with mushrooms than we do when we're dealing with plants. And it's really scared me quite a lot to teach people about mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And it has even scared me personally eating mushrooms. The very first mushroom that I fed my family was a giant puffball mushroom. Now, mm-hmm. how wrong can you go on a giant puffball mushroom, right? Right. It's as big as a football, so long as you cut it open and it's pure white inside and you cook it up. Really, there is, there is nothing you could mistake it for except maybe a lump of pizza dough. <laughs> no poisonous mushroom. So here I have gotten this huge giant puffball. I have cooked it up gloriously. I have served it to my entire family. And within 20 minutes of eating it, I am hallucinating. Oh, wow. <laughs> As though I had eaten a plate full of psilocybin. And I had to go and sit in the other room and say, this is not happening to your entire family. You have not poisoned your family. This is this is anxiety that is causing this, Susan. Yeah, yeah. So it's there, I think, that we feel it very deeply, whether we have heard that there are old mycologists, a mycologist is someone who studies mushrooms, and there are old mycologists, and there are bold mycologists, but there are no old, bold mycologists. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I know that saying. I've heard it as as foragers. There are old foragers, and there are bold foragers, but there are no old, bold foragers. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, I, yeah. it's, it, it's really pretty difficult to poison yourself irretrievably with plants, but it is not so with mushrooms. Right. Right. Now, the kinds of mushrooms that you are talking about, shelf fungi, are mushrooms that have mm-hmm. pores rather than gills. And all right. of the really kill-you-dead mushrooms have gills. Uh-huh. You're dealing with mushrooms with pores. You can get sick, but you can't get dead. 
So there's that one saving grace there as soon as we start to mess around with the polypores, as they're right. called, or shelf fungi. And they do. They look like shelves growing out of the trees. Turkey tail is possibly one of the most common of the shelf fungi and appears in a variety of colors and can flush out on a tree in thousands of little individual fairy shelves. The classic coloration is striations of a kind of almost glistening bronze and gray, which does look like a turkey tail, but around me they can also appear as bright orange. Yes. Paul Stamets, Mr. Mushroom, has done Mm -hmm. a huge amount of work with turkey tail. And Mm -hmm. he uses the mycelium rather than the mushroom. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I know he does like turkey tail capsules. That's the, yes, I and believe. That's, that's the mycelium. And that's the mycelium. Capsules mm, of the okay. mycelium. And he also has tincture, and that's tincture of the mycelium. So he oh, okay. grows it out. He inoculates oat straw with the spores and grows it out to the mycelial stage and then harvests it there. He says there isn't going to be anything in the fruit that isn't already in the mycelium. The mushroom being the fruiting body, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And he has participated in National Cancer Institute studies supplying turkey tail to them so that we have scientifically provable results that turkey tail mushroom can reverse some kinds of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And it's not the mushrooms itself. It's what he supplied, which is the mycelium. You can find people on both sides of this. One of the competing companies is called, of course, Real Mushrooms. To drive the point home that if you actually want to take turkey tail, they have it. And the, all of their mushrooms are certified organic. They are, however, the last that I know, grown in China. So I'm not sure what USDA certified organic grown in China exactly means. Mm-hmm. And they are then dried and powdered. So you're actually taking the actual mushroom. Yeah. The polypore fungus contain different kinds of constituents, some of which are soluble in water and some of which are soluble in alcohol. Mm -hmm. So getting the stuff out of what you harvest becomes somewhat of a challenge. If you have equipment good enough to grind them up and just put them in your food, that is probably the most straightforward way to deal with those Mm -hmm. polypores. But it does take Mm -hmm. specialized equipment. The turkey tail, not so much, but the birch polypore is pretty hard. Yeah. So you you don't think you could just throw those in a blender or something and and grind them all up? No, I do not. I think you would destroy your blender. (laughs) Okay. I have seen people with the professional um, Vitamix, with the 
stainless steel body, and the stainless steel mm-hmm. body l- looks like there's been a uh, fairy bumper car roundup has gone on in there. It is so dented and wow. distorted, <laughs> binding up things like that. I have also yeah. found from personal experience, but you'll have to have to decide for yourself that if the polypores are already hard, I'm probably not going to be able to break them apart, and that boiling them nets me water and a hard mushroom. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. one of my goals is to harvest those mushrooms when they're flexible. Mm-hmm. Because they are. When those polypores first come out, they can be pretty flexible. And I can cut yeah. them up at that point and do what I have my way with them as an herbalist. Okay. Yeah. Right. Somebody was saying to me, yes, she had bought two reishi. Mm-hmm. She didn't know what to do with them. She said she tried hitting them with a hammer. That didn't have much result. So when a shell fungus gets hard, it gets hard. Yeah. Yeah. I I when I harvested both of these kinds, they were still flexible and yep. um um the turkey tails I dehydrated in a dehydrator. Now I was I've been looking around at other at other things too and and um people say you can use them in in your stock you know, yep. or your bone broth. Yep. Um, and so, you know, kind of like I, kind of like you use a shiitake to make uh, miso soup, uh, dashi stock or something like that. So that was one idea I had. Uh, but, but I was but, just curious to what. But, but, but the shiitake is a gilled mushroom. Yes. Right. The gilled mushrooms dehydrate and rehydrate very well. The poured mushrooms don't. Okay. They tend to just seize up and turn to wood when they dehydrate. Right. And then it becomes very difficult to get stuff back out of them. Now, if you take your dehydrated turkey tails, depending on how thin they were when you harvest them, your blender might survive it. Okay. It wouldn't survive the birch polypore. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, probably not. Um, so when you're now, what I've been hearing is that mushrooms need to be cooked. And and so when you're dealing with a, with a dried turkey tail that's been um, ground up like that, and and how I mean how do you I mean is it just something you want to put in your soups and things that you're cooking, rather than, you know, I, mean, I was just kind of trying to think of a way to it, the the, the what um, excuse me the way that I understand these is that they're kind of like good preventative medicine and you know my thought is like oh I want to try to have this regularly you know, um, so I was thinking like oh maybe I throw it in you know. Uh, mix a little in with my coffee every day or something, but would that, I don't know if that would really do the job of cooking them properly, you know, or if I'd be getting what I want to get out of them, you know. That's a really, really good question, and it's a difficult one to answer. 
mm-hmm. at this point. What I do is to eat mushrooms regularly, whether they're mushrooms that suddenly sprout from my shiitake logs that can sit there for years looking like they're dead and then suddenly they're covered in mushrooms again, or whether it's from mushrooms that I find in the forest around my house or mushrooms at the supermarket, they all count as eating mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And I make mm-hmm. that a regular part of my diet. I believe that the science on the use of mushrooms to prevent cancer from metastasizing is quite strong. And most of that science has been done with the products that Paul Stamets puts out. Mm -hmm. So, again, those are mycelial products. How does that compare or what does that tell us about actually using the mushrooms themselves? It's hard to say. And just to throw yet another piece into the puzzle, they, we now have conclusive evidence that there are certain diseases, such as gout, for instance, that are primarily genetic. And no matter what our diet is, it's not going to change our genes for that. It was like, Hmm. for people who changed their diets, there was something like a 4% reduction in gout symptoms. And for those who were genetically, 84% of them had symptoms. Hmm. We also know that if you give 100 women a serving of beans and measure their urinary output of metabolites, showing whether or not those beans have been bioconverted into active hormones, that there's a big difference between the lower excretors and the higher excretors. Again, probably genetic. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. mushrooms are a different world than ours. What's the Mm -hmm. best way for us to interface with that world? I think that with the mushrooms you have, you can do no wrong. Mm -hmm. Smash some of them up and have them with your coffee. Smash some of them up or leave them whole and cook them with your stock. Put some into vinegar, especially if you find some more fresh ones. Experiment and see what you like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Find out how you know they work for me. Yeah. So, um, well, thank you for that. I ha- I have another question if you have time. Rebecca, how many people have their hands up? We just have a couple of callers with their hands up. If you have a question for Susan, make sure to press one, and you can surely have time for another question. Okay. Good. Okay. Good. Um, okay. So, um, for, I don't know, probably as long as I can remember in my life, like every two or three weeks, give or take, I'll wake up and I'll just have a day where I just have a slight dull headache 
that just gradually gets worse throughout the day. And uh, by the time it's time to go to bed, it's pretty bad. And then I'll go to bed and I'll wake up um, the next day and it'll be fine. And uh, I've never really found anything that works for this. Um, I mean, back in the day, I would try like ibuprofen and that never did anything. And after that, I just kind of gave up. And it was just like something, all right, this is just going to be a day where I have a headache and I'm just going to have to live with that and I'll be fine tomorrow, you know. And I don't know, this this happened uh, yesterday. It was one of those days. And, and I just thought that I'd ask you if you had any advice about that. There is an acupressure point in the web of the thumb. Mm-hmm. You can use, say, your right hand on your left hand, and there's that thin little part of the web, and then down into the muscle, and where that V is, the two bones from the thumb and the finger come together. So starting Mm -hmm. where those bones come together, pushing down with your thumb on one side of that fleshy part there, and your pointer finger on the other, pushing them together, and push around in that area, again, pushing your fingers, kind of pinching those areas between your fingers, there will be some points that are more sensitive than others. Mm-hmm. That is, that particular area is um, like a grand central station for a lot of meridians and a lot of energy flows, so many different things that can be going on that can lead us to have a headache. Anything from barometric pressure and how our sinuses relate to that, to sleeping in an odd position, to um, the Chinese might say the liver not holding the energy strongly enough and so it flies up into the head. So a great many different things, but this one area of the hand, and of course switch off then and do the other hand with the other hand, the right, do the right hand with the left hand. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Even if it does not relieve the headache, which it often does for people, it is nonetheless a wonderful area to help tone up the energy in the body. Okay. And I think one of the gifts that we can give ourselves if, if that we have a problem like this which it interferes with our quality of life, but other than that is reasonably minor, that if mm-hmm. we tie it to a self-loving and self-nurturing activity, that it's a little more tolerable. Mm-hmm. Okay. I will try that. Okay. Um, yeah, great. Thanks so much. Um I've been listening to the show usually after the fact, like on the blog or on the uh, podcast, I mean. been listening uh-huh. for about a year, and I just got to say that um, you really learn a lot when you listen to your show every week. So it's been really wonderful. So thank you for your generosity. You are welcome. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. The next caller is coming from the 973 area code. Hello? Hi. How are you? 
I am well. How are you? <laughs> Good. Um, I have a question. I have um eight year old son who has um he's been dealing with like allergies, more um environmental and uh, milk intolerance. Um he started kindergarten um <clears throat> well he's in third grade now, but when he started kindergarten he had this like uh inflammation um uh breakout and I took him to allergies to the pediatrician, different people, uh didn't see any like real uh, allergy, but he was scratching, his eyes were uh, puffy. So I took him to an eye specialist who eventually gave him eye medication. And um, it kind of like the flare went down somewhat, but after that he was left with like his sclera was um, they're kind of like jaundice-like, like a reddish in his eye, white part of his eyes. So the pediatrician said it's nothing like jaundice, um, but it's, it has never gone away. And uh, there are times where it seems like he sniffles, uh, he just has this, like, environmental, uh, I don't know if food is involved, but um, I don't know what to do. I try to, you know, take out certain things out of his diet, but I don't want to do that because he's growing. And I don't know if you have any advice of just certain herbs I can use to kind of help him to get better. Um, and also, he he doesn't go to the bathroom um, on a regular basis. Um so that's another thing too. We all eat like you know healthy diet. The whole family we're fine, we're regular, but he's not. So I'm not sure. Um, from the, I'm not sure what to do because I've tried different things. So I don't know if you have any input. Yes. First, let me ask: Is your son drinking nourishing herbal infusions? Yes, I've had him do nettle, um, but it's, I haven't been consistent with it. That's the thing. Like. Last year, I did have him do it, and he was getting better, and so I'm on and off about it. So um, that's something that is not consistent. Okay. And not just nettle. The, the um, I five... mean the nettle or like mullen, but I haven't done the other ones. With him. Mm-hmm. There are five herbs that I generally use, and each one has something to offer your son and your whole family. Okay. Nettle is definitely an herb that can help to give the adrenals enough nourishment and enough substance that they can slow down histamine response, which is what you're talking about. His eyes are bloodshot from histamine response. They're swollen from histamine response. And stinging nettle doesn't immediately, but over the long run, can Mm -hmm. indeed slow that down. Linden, however, is a direct anti-inflammatory. Okay. And I have so, them at home. including linden in the nourishing herbal infusion rotations, includes a really good anti-inflammatory, um, which then counters the effects of the histamines while the body is learning to produce less histamine. Uh, we are also offering it support to not react so strongly to that. Mm-hmm. Humphrey, like the linden, is also an anti-inflammatory. And at the same time, it gives the cells more flexibility. Okay. So that when there is a histamine release, the cells spring back into shape a lot quicker. And there's less lingering effect from what is going on. So nettle, linden, comfrey, red clover is Mm -hmm. an herb that nourishes, among other things, the nervous system. And
and the liver's ability to help remove compounds from the blood. Mm-hmm. And oat straw is strengthening and nourishing for children who aren't consuming dairy products. Yes, he's not. He cannot handle dairy products. So all five of those herbs done in rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, he When he was little, he used to have like these big hiccups when I used to give him oats. So I don't know um, if there's a connection with Ostra and oats. Um, I don't know what you think about that. If I should still try it. Oat straw is the grass of oats, Mm -hmm. but it does not contain what oats contain so long as you buy oat straw. There are two oat herbs for sale on the general market. Green, milky oats, which does contain oats, and oat Mm -hmm. straw which generally does not contain it. Okay. And how much do I give them with the infusion? Like when I make it, because I make the quart, um, should I give them half, like half a cup or a whole cup daily And as I switch them around? What I generally do is encourage children to drink as much infusion as they want. Okay. It's safe for him to drink up to the entire quart a day. Sounds good. Okay. You don't have to limit his intake. Okay, just because he's a child. Okay. In the same way that you don't have to limit his carrot intake. Okay. Right? Just because he's a child it doesn't mean he has to eat less carrots, right? Mm-hmm. That's true. We always think about herbs differently, I guess. You're using herbs that are drug-like or potentially poisonous, that's a good thing to think, but these aren't. These are foodstuffs. Oh, foodstuff, okay. Um, parsley, I have is a lot more of da- parsley, is, parsley is more dangerous than these herbs. Really? Okay. Um, I was going to say, I have a lot of comfrey that my husband and I, we grew in the back, but we really don't use them. Um, but I also have the dry ones, um, the leaves from Mountain Rose Herbs. I guess I should just, um, should I cook some of the comfrey or just, no, like the fresh leaves? Or just, would that be? People have been known to cook and eat comfrey, but it's a very hairy leaf, so it's not very attractive. And the people that I know that have cooked and eaten comfrey leaf only did it once. Okay. It's not too late to dry one. They'll harvest it and to hang it up Mm -hmm. to dry, and the infusion is made only from dried herb. Okay. And then um, I have a hard time drying it. Do you have any advice on that? Because I'm like, I'm wasting them in the back. But I feel like they get like very, um, when you dry, it's kind of difficult to dry comfrey at home. I'm not sure what's the best way to leave them flat somewhere or to hang them. The entire flowering stalk. Mm-hmm. Take off any leaves that are yellow or tatty and hang those individual flowering stalks one by one to dry. And I hang them so they don't touch. Okay. Outside or inside the home? I'm sorry? Outside or inside the house? would never hang an herb to dry outside. In fact, from the moment that you cut it, thereafter, Mm -hmm. the sun is the mortal enemy of the herb, and it should never again see the sun. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And um, I had some... I had some appointment. In fact... I'm sorry, go ahead. 
if I'm harvesting a lot of an herb, say nettle, I will only harvest for 15 minutes, go in and hang it up, and then come back out because I don't want the herb I've harvested exposed to the sun. Mm, it's good to know that. Mm-hmm. So, and I have another... Um, let, let me go on just a little bit. Okay. I would urge you to make a half gallon of infusion. Okay, half gallon. Because then there's some for you to drink. Yes, I have three of them, three boys, and they've dealt with, like, you know, allergies and stuff, so everyone... Actually Everyone, in fact, you could make it by the gallon, yeah. you know. But I would at least make half a gallon so that mm-hmm. everybody has some to drink. And if it gets drunk up before the day is over, then you know to make a gallon a day. Okay. Let it be the primary beverage. Let it be the thing that's right there when they open the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Let it be the thing yeah, they want They're good to drink. about drinking, too. Mm-hmm. They're good about drinking herb, um, herbal infusion tea, so um, I, they're not going to have a problem with it. So. Wonderful. Um, I also um, wanted to uh, see what you thought. I spoke to this person today uh, who does NA, NAET, um, I guess, uh, acupressure on kids. Do you think mm-hmm. I still need to go and um, have them look at and try that for um, the allergies, or should I just do the herbal infusion for now? It's entirely up to you, but I was just reading in the New England Journal of Medicine that they found that children that are exposed to baked goods that contain dairy products in the baked good get over their milk allergy much faster. Hmm. Okay. So you might want to consider making some baked goods that contain milk or yogurt or cheese, and including Which those. Which loves. He loves baked goods, and we try not to give him baked goods with milk in it because we're like, oh, you don't need to have that. But um, he won't do the milk straight up, but he will, he will, he likes baked goods. Like exactly. You know, um, and okay. and as I said, there's some pretty strong scientific research showing that even children who have milk allergies tolerate it well when it's been cooked into baked goods and get over their, mm-hmm. that helps them get over their milk allergy. That's quite interesting because that's what he wants to eat. Usually like, no, don't touch that, you know, but he won't touch the milk straight or the, you know, yogurt. Mm-hmm. But if, mm-hmm. if it's mm-hmm. baked goods, he, he wants it. Mm-hmm. So I definitely will try that. Yeah. His body is telling you what. Um, Good. Mhm. I was gonna say, how about um with the going to the bathroom? He's not regular. Um. Mhm. Um. So I'm not sure if the herb, the infusions, will help him to go. That's another Usually issue. Usually they too. do, and if that doesn't, okay. yellow dock root tincture is mm-hmm. considered an herb, the herb of regularity. And okay. How much should I give little him? As, uh, as little as five drops a day can be useful for a child. Okay. When he does go, is it painful? No, um uh he says it's not painful but it's heavy, like it's like heavy duty. <laughs> like yeah, it's 
seems like he's like you know backed up for a while. So. No, you know I'm always reluctant to call anything that the human body does that isn't hurting mm-hmm. abnormal. Okay. There's such a range of normality. Mm-hmm. And I think that many of us are focusing on acceptance more than seeing something as a problem. Mm-hmm. Certainly, if someone's in pain, if your child's in pain, if your child is having a problem dealing with something, I'm not suggesting that we ignore it. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying, are we making a problem here where there is no problem? No one has ever died of constipation. Mm-hmm. While we've been speaking, five children have died of diarrhea. That's true. So there are a number of reasons for the body to act like that, Um, ranging from a body that needs a lot more energy, and so it's going to retain the food until it can wring every last bit of energy from it, Mm. to a a body that has a past life memory of um, extreme hardship and lack and so wants to hold on to things. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, in and of itself, not having a bowel movement every day is not a health hazard. Okay. Yeah, I think about my, my son in February is that because I feel like he's um, had his issues when he was younger, especially like I was saying when he was in kindergarten, he went through this phase. I don't know if it was like stress, and he just started like his body just went, you know, just um, out of control and didn't know what it was. I don't know if he was just afraid, anxious. And then um, it was just the weirdest thing. It's always such a humbling as parents who want to believe that our input is so important to our children to see how absolutely unique and individual they are. Mm -hmm. And that the same input that we give them is interpreted and used so differently by them. I think you're doing a wonderful job. I don't think that there's anything wrong with what you're doing. I've been uh, asking, but haven't yet gotten an answer on what the current count is on chemicals found in cord blood in newborns. And the last that I heard, which was which I know is quite out of date, there were hundreds of different chemicals being found in the blood of newborns. Mm-hmm. I think that that's very much a part of it. I also think that the immune system resets itself when it has a very high fever. And that a part of childhood and young adulthood for humans used to include several episodes of very high fevers. Well, she's had some. He's had like a, a 
cerebral seizure when he was three. Good, good. It would be good for him to have a high fever again. It can really uh, be the fastest way to reset the immune system and to have the body be less sensitive to foods. Yes, he's had it like a few times, and I get nervous because he's the only one that gets really high fevers. The other one, other two boys, they don't. The other two boys haven't, right? He yeah, just, they get you know, he, just, mm-hmm. he needs to reset more often. Sounds like you're taking wonderful care of him and all your children. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. But I listen. I have your books. I listen. I read your stuff all the time to the radio show. So I've learned a lot from you. My husband's gotten help um, with his allergies, um, with nettle, because I've shared stuff with um, you know with him about your information. So you've been a really good help, great help to our family. So I really appreciate it. You are welcome. Thank you mm-hmm. for reading. Herbal medicine okay. to its rightful place as people's medicine. Yes. Thank you. Good night. Green blessing. Good night. Green blessing. Looks like we just have one more caller with a question. If you have a question for Susan, please press 1 to speak with her. And the next caller is coming from the 252 area code. Hi, Susan. This is Jen in North Carolina. I called last week talking about the flooded crops and what some of those options were. And I wanted to call back and let you know that um, I'm an extension master gardener. And today we had an incredible treat. Um, We had the North Carolina University group of folks and we had folks from the Duke Nicholas School of the Environment who did a webinar for us to tell us you know, what what should we be doing with flooded crops? Um, and, and your question to me immediately was, well, what are they worried about? And so I, I hadn't thought about it that way. And I started to think about what, what were they worried about? And I found out, and I found out some really interesting stuff. Um, the biocontaminants, they were worried about a multitude of them, and everybody felt like there's no good news. You really need to get rid of the crops. And um, I asked about seed crops, and they said that's probably okay, but again, they don't have the answer. There were a lot of things they just don't have the answer for. Um, so it was interesting. They they said that composting, we should hold on to the material for 120 days and treat it like it's manure, and that it would probably be okay. But the overall consensus from everybody was if you had a flood contaminant with chemicals, dump it and you're going to have problems, and your soil is going to have problems, and there's a lot of wait and see, and unfortunately, those are just completely destructive. So I'm close to a marina. I had chemicals, and I'm probably going to garden in a community garden somewhere other than my backyard next year. Um, So I thought I'd let you know that I had this really fantastic experience, and, and it was nice to have your question in my mind. Thank you so much for calling back and sharing all of that. And did you say that was through your cooperative extension, through your county? Yeah, it is. Yep, and I've heard you recommend that many times. And um, I'm an extension master gardener, and um, I I work very closely with NC State, and I have in my business career as well. And there's just an amazing amount of information about how to really live and, and what's safe. And um, there's a lot of stuff out there. We're dealing with trauma here and people with emotional trauma. And so they're, they're, they even come through at an extension level for those kinds of services. And it's it's really very um, privileged to have that kind of relationship. And I know in most states, you're right, that this is a very strong force that people, you know, think about their farmers in high school and they're the kids that don't wear the cool clothes. And that's probably they, you know, all they know about extension. And as we go through life, they're a wonderful resource. Absolutely wonderful resource for all of us that have anything to do with nature. And guess what? That's all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really what we all seem to not quite have as 
put a handle on anymore. <laughs> so you so, live near a marina. You were flooded. Yeah. The oil yeah. tanks and the fuel tanks of the marina were flooded, and so all the water that was in your soil Everything and on your crops flooded was was contaminated yeah. with all of that fuel. Yes, and the concern and that's not, I, I, that's not going to go away anytime soon. Well, what I have what small, we do know is that mushroom mycelium can help remove yeah. that. Yeah. I'm sh- I, they, I, once again, we're well, talking my about- worm bins lived, my, my, my vermiculture bins lived, and I'm going back out there and I'm just going to put all this good stuff back in and pray. Um, but I, I do know from a past experience, and it was really a very interesting phenomenon. In Irene, we had the same thing happen, but it didn't stay as long and it was not as, as substantial. Um, but I had a decent year the next year, not knowing enough maybe that I shouldn't have grown in it. They suggested cover crops for at least the next season. Um, and then the year after, I had nematodes, root knot nematode. I had root knot nematode in everything, and I had never had that before. And I came to learn that the, the beneficial nematodes tend to be in the first four inches of the soil, and that's exactly what we probably flooded. So I think we have at least a, at least a two-year cycle here of process. So I believe that through Paul you can get mushroom mycelia that you can inoculate into the soil. Into the soil. Okay. Removal of those hydrocarbons. Good. Okay. So I'm going to try and do that. And I, you're you're inoculating the way you would um, to do what you use. Uh, I'm blank on what it is, but you usually use it to do um, Japanese beetles and inoculate. Of oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. So can I just can I just use that to be my bedding material then going forward for a season or so? Yes. I know that Good. Paul okay. does a lot of bioremediation with mycelial help. Good. And then okay. Well, in the middle of this, I also lost a... mycelium that eat hydrocarbons. Okay. And then he has I gone think that into element in my soil. Oil and the water be have been contaminated and removed those contaminants within really? a That's year, right. within months, by the use of mushroom mycelia. This is nice to talk about mushrooms, I guess, huh? <laughs> it is. Thank you. That's that's very good. Yeah. I won't be growing any soon. My shade is gone. A hundred plus foot pecan tree is on the ground, and oh. so my mycelia factors have changed a lot. But my a sunlight lot. is back in more than it was. So we'll we'll rebuild. That's what nature does. It comes. It, it fixes itself faster that's than why, I can fix it. That's usually. why he inoculates into the hay, into the straw bales, the oat straw bales, and okay. then puts them where he wants. Right on. Wants it to go. Anyhow, great. I will. I, I, he I'm has a lot it. more information. I'm a little sketchy about it. I've heard him talk about okay. it, and I've seen a video that he did about it. Well, let me go research it, and if I find out anything interesting, I'll call you back and share it. Sounds great. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye. Green blessings. Good night. To you. Bye. Okay. We don't have any more callers with questions. Unless somebody Yay, all the problems of the world have been solved. Oh, I said that, and somebody queued up right away. So <laughs> coming from the 425 area code. Hello, Susan. I'm so happy to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, my name, I have been following you for about a year now, and I really appreciate uh, share 
there are not a lot of people like you in the world that appreciate nature. So thank you for teaching me and teaching me how to uh, relive nature. My question for you tonight is about uh, Dultura stramonium, um, Jimson weed. I have a huge plant of it growing in my backyard. Um, I have free-range chickens, and they go and peck at the seeds sometimes. Um, I'm wondering, is there any uses for this plant? This is one of the loco weeds. It is related to belladonna and henbane, notorious witches' poisons from Europe. It's interesting that you should. About a year ago, I decided that I was being a snob to not read Agatha Christie, and that I was indeed being a snob because I wasn't reading her because, oh, she's just so popular. Oh, da, 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 da. So I have been devoting myself to reading her, especially her Poirot stories. And I have the complete Poirot short stories, which goes on to more than 800 pages. And... um Here we go, page 772. Well, the active principle of Datura is very closely related to, if not actually, the alkaloid atropine, which is also obtained from belladonna, or deadly nightshade. This is Agatha Christie. Belladonna preparations are fairly common, and atropine sulfate itself is prescribed for eye treatments. By getting a prescription and getting it made up in different places, a large quantity of the poison could be obtained without arousing suspicion. Then the alkaloid could be extracted from it and introduced, say, into a soothing shaving cream. Applied externally, it would cause a rash, which would lead to abrasions and shaving, and thus the drug would be continually entering the system, and it would produce symptoms, dryness of the mouth and throat, difficulty in swallowing, hallucinations, and double vision. Hmm. Okay, not, so... does not sound attractive, does it? No, it really doesn't. Do, is this something that I should be worried about uh, my chickens consuming? Yes. Okay. Yep, so, ab- I mean... Absolutely, it has... Killed livestock on occasion. Most livestock is smart enough not to kill themselves, but every once in a while you get an animal that just doesn't quite get it and eats enough to kill itself. I talk to people who have tried to use it as a psychoactive plant, and almost to the one they have said, do not try it. It was awful. It was terrible. The seeds especially. The one person who said I had a reasonably good time took the root, boiled the root down, and smeared the root on the bottoms of her feet and in her armpits. Datura was the plant that was used for the community to journey together in Clan of the Cave Bear by Jean Owl. And when the community took Datura, they took it in a cave, and there was a large stone rolled up against the mouth of the cave so they couldn't get out. And that cave was actually in another cave. And the entrance to that 
larger cave was guarded by people so that should they have the superhuman strength and be able to roll the stone away, nonetheless, there were guards there that would prevent them from leaving. One of the things that's said about Deuterah, I certainly don't speak from personal experience because I don't want to experience it personally, thank you, is that when you have ingested Deuterah, you no longer have any way to tell between fantasy and reality. Well, that doesn't sound like fun either. Especially not for chickens, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. It does have beautiful flowers, but um, I don't want any of my chickens oh, to die. So thank you very much. Lovely scent too, but followed mm-hmm. by a rather ugly seed pod. It's uh, it looks kind of aggressive and angry, but still, it's you know. Um, I'm kind of drawn to it. Those green spiky balls, there's something special about it. There is indeed something special about those green spiky balls, right? (laughs) 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 You think, wow. You You are welcome. Thanks for calling and telling us about your Dextura, your Jimson weed. May I ask one more question? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I have um, been taking, I've uh, been taking Adderall for, about three years now, um, and I am, I use it because it does help me uh, in work. I get a lot more work done. I stay more focused. Um, without it, I'm kind of just like a lump on the couch. Um, is, there, is there anything that you think um, would be, help me to get off of it um, or to do something different You might want to check out Rhodiola Rosei. Oh, wow. I ordered some of that. Great minds are thinking alike here. Yeah. It didn't, uh, it didn't flower. I ordered the seed. It didn't flower, but it's beautiful. All right. There you yeah. go. And you might want to make a preparation of that, perhaps Rhodiola tincture. Mm-hmm. And take that on a regular basis. Okay. After it's set for six weeks, you can use a fresh rhodiola, chop it up, fill a jar full of the chopped rhodiola, and then 100 proof vodka to the top, cap it and label it, wait six weeks, and you can take that usually by the dropper fall. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Susan, I, I really uh, thank you for what you bring to the world. Um Yes, I hope you're around for a very long time because there's so much you have to teach, and I appreciate every moment of it. Thank you. I'm honored. Have a wonderful night. I shall. Okay, if anybody else has a question, please press 1, and um, we will go to an email question. Although I'm not sure we're going to be time effective for it because it was written last Wednesday, but um, it's an interesting question. So it says, hi, Susan. I am searching for some answers this morning. I had a contraceptive accident and feel the need to take Ella, a progesterone-blocking emergency contraception. I am extremely sensitive to hormone imbalances, and I am wondering if there are herbs to help me counteract this after I take it to help me get back into rhythm or even an herbal protocol alternative to taking this pill that you can direct me towards. Thank you. 
I'm always at a loss for words when people start talking about hormonal balance. Mm-hmm. Any human being that's in hormonal balance is dead. We can't be in hormonal balance. We're not supposed to be in hormonal balance. We're supposed to be reacting to our environment and our hormones are part of the messenger system that allows us to react to our environment. If we look at, say, estrogen production, even if we're just looking at one of the 30 estrogens that human women make, if we look at one of those estrogens, estradiol, we see that it has very little production during the first two weeks, and there's a large spike of it mid-cycle, which rapidly falls off and again goes back to baseline level. So at what point is it balanced? It's not balanced, and it's not supposed to be balanced. If we then open up our time frame and we look at the production of estradiol over 24 hours, again, there are peaks and valleys. They are more rhythmical within a 24-hour cycle with there being, shall we call them, little spurts or pulses of hormone being made at regular intervals. So it's not really balance that we're looking for with hormones. It's flexibility, it's resilience, and perhaps most importantly, and most importantly in terms of what she's asking about, it's our body's ability to reuse, recycle, and get rid of hormones that we no longer want or need. As I understand it, here's what happens. There are things in the blood, including hormones, that are circulating in the blood. When they come to the liver, the liver basically says, I love you, stay in the blood. I hate you, go to the kidneys and get pissed out. Or, you need to come back and talk to me later. Hormones are in the last category. You need to come back and talk to me later. Those are second-pass things for the liver. And so when they do come back later and talk, the liver is supposed to be able to take those hormones apart into their constituent parts and throw those parts back in the tinker toy box so that new hormones can be made. If the liver can't do this function as well as it needs to, then two things happen. One, we run low on materials. We're making new hormones so the new messages don't get sent. And the old messages keep circulating. So we are not up to date with our environment. So I would say that the simplest answer to what she's asking, how can I recover from having taken this progesterone pill? would be do something for your liver. Do something nice for your liver, whether it is dandelion or yellow dock or burdock or chicory or thistle, whatever you have that will make your liver sit up and say, thank you so much, I really appreciate it. That's what I would do. In terms of having herbs that can be used Instead of drugs, my experience is that herbs aren't, instead of when we're using drugs to shut down, stop, 
destroy, and kill. Certainly, herbs can do those things, but they don't do them anywhere near as well as drugs do. I often talk about the fact that wormwood is called wormwood because it was used to get rid of worms, and it does contain constituents that can kill worms. The problem is that it contains other constituents that can mess you up, and to get enough of the constituents that kill worms, you get way too much of the constituents that mess you up. So here we have a very clear example of where a drug is better. We can go into the wormwood, we can take out the constituents that kill worms, and then we can just use those separately without using the whole kit and caboodle. That's what a drug is. Well, we found something generally from a plant. And rather than using all the hundreds of constituents in the plant, we use just one of those constituents. When it comes to nourishing and tonifying, this approach does not work. The whole is not equal to its most active part. But when it comes to killing, destroying, stopping, ah, this is exactly the approach that we want. So there isn't an herbal equivalent of the morning after pill. There are yeah, there are herbal birth controls, but they're not the equivalent of the morning after pill. We did have somebody um, just queue up with a question. Let's see if we can get them in before Ryan arrives. Coming from the 859 area code. You were finished with that, Susan? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hi, this is Kathleen. Um, I have a quick question that um, may have a quick answer, but may not. I have, um, since my um, first pregnancy about 18 years ago, started to develop brown spots on my face and mm. that are known as liver spots. And I'm wondering... What uh, if they're a sign of anything going on in the liver or if they're just something else? It's an interesting question that follows very closely on what I was just talking about. Okay. It's thought that that melanation, right, so there's there's a melanin that is produced by the skin in the presence of sunlight or in the presence of certain hormones being elevated, right? Progesterone, especially the hormone of pregnancy, as it rises during pregnancy, can cause melanation across the cheeks especially, Mm -hmm. sometimes called the mask of pregnancy. Right. And for some women, it doesn't go away. It does not indicate that your liver isn't doing well or that there's any ongoing problem. Okay. It's so almost have... almost like a scar. This actually continued to um, appear since then, and I think the I haven't so when really you say noticed... continue, the area is spreading and widening and getting darker. I I haven't really paid super close attention. I it could be that one um that the first ones became darker or larger. It could also just be that new one, I definitely know that new ones have appeared and they're definitely larger and darker than the original. 
I know somebody brought to my attention that I have a really tiny heart-shaped one on my right cheek, and then I noticed a second appear next to it that was larger and also heart-shaped. So there's they're they're still appearing. They're still. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, just, I haven't talk- really tracked it. Talking about liver-loving herbs tonight. I actually only just was able to get on um, to listen about a half mm-hmm. an hour ago. So the last yeah. caller, I know. I'll, I'll listen to it. I'll listen to the recording. Yeah, you know, dandelion and yellow dock, burdock, and um, just all kinds of wonderful herbs for the liver. Okay. And I, certainly worth trying. You can't harm yourself by taking herbs that help your liver. Right. Right. Thank you. You're welcome. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. And I'm going to go ahead and start introducing Rianne Eisler, Ph.D., who is a systems scientist and a cultural historian. Her research has inspired both scholars and social activists, as well as herbalists. Her work shows that raising the status of women is key to constructing a more equitable and less violent world based on partnership rather than domination. She pioneered the expansion of the human rights theory and action to include the rights of women and children. Rianne Eisler is co-founder and president of the Center for Partnership Studies dedicated to research and education, and she is in chief of the Interdisciplinary Journal of Partnership Studies, an online peer-reviewed journal at the University of Minnesota that was inspired by her work. Dr. Eisler is internationally known for her bestseller, The Chalice and the Blade, Our History, Our Future, now in 27 foreign languages. Dr. Eisler's book on economics, The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics, was hailed by Archbishop Desmond Tutu as a template for the better world we have been so urgently seeking. And by Gloria Steinem as revolutionary, and by Jane Goodall as a call to action. Her most recent book, Transforming Interprofessional Partnerships, has won both national and international awards. Dr. Eisler keynotes conferences nationally and internationally, has addressed the United Nations General Assembly, the U.S. Department of State, and congressional briefings, and has spoken at corporations and universities worldwide. She consults on applications of her partnership model as she has written about it. Welcome to the show, Rianne. I'm not seeing Rianne's number on here. If you are here, please press 1 so I can see that you are in the queue. And I think we'll just have to give her a call. All right, then. All right, then. All right. You have reached 831-624-8337. Please leave a message. 
Hi, Rianne. This is Susan Weed. It's 9 o'clock. Time for you to be on my show. We're so excited that you're going to be with us tonight. As soon as you get this message, give us a call at 646-929-2463. And then once you're connected to the show, be sure to press 1 so that we can see that you're in the queue. Looking forward to spending time with you, Rianne. Um, well, that's a So you said for... that you have been rereading The Chalice and the Blade. Tell us a little bit about what you've been reading and how it's affecting you. <laughs> um, I have not been reading it for like the last uh, couple of weeks since I've been m- moving and, um, yeah, let's see. It's it talks a lot about um kind of like the ancient origins of like the feminine and um um have you read the book, Susan? I have, but quite a while ago. And it certainly had a profound impact on me because it was another very powerful voice saying no, you know, you're not overreacting, Susan. Women and children are systemically put down and the objects of violence, which is culturally condoned. And, of course, as I was coming into my feminism, I was very frequently being told, oh, you're making such a big deal about that. Oh, well, that isn't really true. No, you're just, well, goodness, aren't you sensitive that you think that this is violence toward women? And I, I trace a you know, profound line from a Rianne Eisler's work in The Chalice and the Blade to Me Too. Mm-hmm. That over th- those decades... We have learned um, to recognize that violence and that Rianne has codified it by actually, you know, it's hard for us to believe that human rights theory could leave out women and children before Rianne yeah. Eisler. And I mean, right, we shake our heads and we go, what? What? The origin women and children simply didn't yeah. count. Right, in the mm-hmm. same way that the founding fathers could say we hold it evident that all men are created equal, and they really meant men. Mm-hmm. In fact, if they had been really truthful, they would have said rich white men. Because that's really what they meant. They didn't in any way to think, think that women were equal or that poor people were equal or that non-white people were equal. And yeah, and I really for, like how she it all the way back to like you know like the that the first symbols of um feminine how powerful they were and like much more powerful than like the patriarchal like mindset and culture that we're living in now but it actually you know like from the origins of our civilization like was very female centric and that was uh based on goddess culture like from yes, very female, like, but not not feminine. I use those words yeah. very, very differently. Female is double X in every cell, and it's an actual fact of life. Feminine is a cultural construct. 
-hmm. And I often say, you know, many people would not find me feminine. I run a chainsaw. You know, I've wrestled goats to the ground. (laughs) I'm not small and petite. You know, I don't talk with rising inflections at the end of each sentence. Mm -hmm. And part of that, of course, is self-training through feminism to not be that image that I am not, but to be absolutely female. And I think that that Rianne does a wonderful job of really helping us kind of trace along how how did we come from honoring, revering women and the goddess to seeing them as worthless. But more more importantly, because we can all just, you know, wag our heads and say it's bad, it's bad. More importantly, she offers a vision of a future where this is different. Mm -hmm. And again, that is the reason that the chalice and the blade is available in 27 different foreign languages. Everyone on the planet wants to know, how do we go forward from here? What did Desmond Tutu say? The world we have been so urgently seeking. And to me, this is also about the wise woman tradition, which is a tradition of sharing and giving and not always looking over our shoulder and being worried about who might get one up on us. Mhm. Yeah, and um I think that we should maybe try to call her one more time actually to see if we can get that her on. That's good. Here. Let's do that. Somebody did just call in from a a private number. Would this happen yes. to be you, Rayanne? Yes. Yes, it happens to be me. And I'm afraid <laughs> that the number that was in the last email was the wrong number, but I finally found the right number. I'm so glad you found the right number, and we also called and left it on your answering machine here. We're so wonderful that you've been able to get through. And we have been uh, singing your praises and talking about how important your work is. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to start the show, and I apologize for being late, but here I am. Here you are. You know, it's always fascinating to find out what kind of life experiences led you to the work that you're doing now? Well, uh, my passion for this work, and it's really very deeply rooted in my own early childhood experiences, came out of my childhood in Vienna uh, when my parents and I had to flee the Nazis uh, for our lives. And I was a little girl, and I watched a gang of Nazis uh, really... Uh, break into our home, drag my father off. So I saw cruelty and violence, but I also saw something else that night, and it was what I call spiritual courage. And my mother had that courage. She recognized one of the Nazis as an Austrian who had been an errand boy for the family business, and she got furious. She said, how dare you do this to this man who was so kind to you? 
And by a miracle, she wasn't killed. A lot of people were killed that night. It was Crystal Night, the first night of official Nazi terrorism against Jews. But by a miracle, she wasn't. By a miracle, she obtained my father's release. Some money passed hands, of course. And by a miracle, we were able to escape uh, to Havana, one of the only two places in the world. Other, It was just Shanghai and Cuba where you could buy uh, entry permits, and my parents were able to purchase one. So I grew up in the industrial slums of Havana where I saw and experienced dire poverty. So all these experiences, while traumatic, really shaped me. And and it was the questions that they raised about does there have to be so much cruelty, so much insensitivity, so much violence, or are there alternatives, and if so, what are they, that led to my work? That is very much along the lines of what Rebecca and I have been saying, is that it's not just that your work is amazing, but that your work points out how we can change, that we don't just look back and go, tut, tut, it's so bad, but that we have an active way forward. Can you tell us more about that active way forward? Well, um, I'll tell you, uh, as I said, these were the questions that led to my research, but there was also another pivotal experience before I uh, embarked on it, and that was in the late 1960s, when along with thousands of other women, I woke up as if from a long drugged sleep to realize that as much as having been born Jewish had almost cost me my life, having been born female had also had a profound impact on my life, my life options, even how I saw myself. And when then I um, later started Uh, my research, I really understood something which we all have to understand, which is that conventional studies pay scant, if any, attention to uh, how a society constructs the roles and relations of the two basic forms of humanity, female and male, and of their relationship in turn with their children. And as a matter of fact, I saw that I couldn't answer the questions of my childhood by looking at at history, at at, at cross-cultural societies, etc., through the lenses of our old social categories, which, again, pay scant if any attention, right, left, religious, secular, eastern, western, northern, southern, to these foundational matters, even though we today know from not only psychology but neuroscience that what children first observe and experience impacts nothing less than how our brains develop and hence how we feel, think, and act and, of course, what kind of society we think is moral, immoral, inevitable, etc. So I drew from a much larger database and what I found is that once you leave these old ways of looking uh, at societies behind, uh, there are underlying patterns that repeat themselves both cross-culturally and also 
going way back into history and going to today, and there were no names for them. So I called one the partnership system and the other one the domination system. And really, uh, these are configurations that we need to understand, which is that, as I said, yes, how we construct um, these fundamental relations has to be considered if we're talking about moving to a safer, more caring, more sustainable world. And we're seeing a lot of movement in that direction, but of course, we're also seeing a real pushback uh, in the United States and globally. One of the things that you probably aren't aware of is that it's exactly this split that I have been addressing throughout my career as an herbalist, that I do not want people to have dominion over the herbs, which, of course, is what the Bible literally says, is that we have dominion over all the plants, but I want people to have relationships with the plants. I love that. Well, we're so, you know, people who grow up in families that are rigidly male-dominated, you know, top-down rankings, man over woman, highly punitive, uh, they learn early on that there are really only two alternatives. You either dominate or you're dominated. There is no partnership alternative, and it's up to us. And I'm so glad you're doing this. That is just great. Uh, that, yes, there is a partnership alternative, and it is healthier, it is better for ourselves and for our planet. And it, the the good news is we don't have to start from square one to build it because, number one, if we go way back in our prehistory, as my work does, you know, books like The Chalice and the Blade and Sacred Pleasure, uh, we see that for millennia, uh, human societies primarily oriented the partnership rather than domination configuration of more equality, gender balance, uh, less, much, much less violence and abuse. And, of course, what's happening in our world today over the last 300 years is that every progressive movement has really challenged one thing, traditions of domination, whether it was the so-called rights of man movement of the Enlightenment or the feminist movement or the, uh, you know, abolitionist human rights, civil rights movement, always challenging these top-down rankings, you know, kings over subjects, men over women, uh, and yes, race over race, and and we've continued this, and and the fact that we're now really beginning to focus on gender socialization, that we're beginning, you know, the Me Too movement, uh, that we're really beginning to look at the traditions of violence against women and children, not just the peace movement, but, you know, really looking at where children first either learn that it's okay to use violence to impose your will on others, that it's moral or that it's not. Uh, this is fundamental. So we can all be part of the partnership movement once we understand the configuration. And we, can, we don't have to wait for the entire culture to change. 
it's not a top-down thing. Dominion is top-down, and partnership is from the ground up. Absolutely. And, but partnership is more than only from the ground up, because as we see, for example, with um, Donald Trump's base, I mean, that's sort of from the bottom up too, but they've been so socialized to accept this top-down system, uh, you know, that they actually idealize strongman rule. So um, it, can, it can be comforting to be told what to do. Well, it's more than that. Uh, uh, the studies are beginning to show that the people who really, not everybody, but a, a vast majority of the people who voted for this regime did not have economic troubles themselves. What they were really, uh, what they were really responding to was this dog whistle about their status as whites and as males and as women who support this kind of system. So it's fascinating that because and where did they learn that this is the divinely or genetically or whatever ordained order, which is not true is in their first family and other experiences. So you see how it's all interconnected. Absolutely. absolutely. Now, a hundred years ago, if I was married and working, my husband would, would, by all rights, own all the money I made. Not only that, you couldn't even sue yourself for injuries inflicted on you. Only your husband could sue for them because he, for loss of services. Can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. So we have come a long way. Women like you and literally thousands of other women have worked very, very hard to get us some rights. And I think that one of the things you talk about is that equal pay for equal work is is one of the most important of the things that we need to focus on. Absolutely. And you know... It's really interesting because in the domination system where you have these rigid gender stereotypes and the ranking of male over female, what you also get is a gendered system of values in which anything uh, stereotypically, you know, that we've learned to associate with the, quote, soft or feminine is devalued. So caring, caregiving, nonviolence, the very qualities and activities we urgently need, uh, there's no money for them, right? But there's always money for weapons, for wars, for prisons, you know, control, domination. So we've got to really unpack this. And I want to recommend to people, uh, go to uh, our websites. Go to centerforpartnership.org. Go to rianeisler.com. Read my books. Read The Real Wealth of Nations. It's about moving to an economic system that recognizes the economic value, not just the human and environmental value, of caring for people starting in early childhood and caring for our Mother Earth. Um, and, and, and we have the opportunity to change it now as we move into the post-industrial economy when so many of the old jobs are disappearing and caring, whether it's for children, for the elderly, for the sick, is, 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 is vital, 
we have to recognize the value. You know, in the United States, uh, care workers are paid less than dog walkers. I mean, that's insane. I mean, I love dogs, but yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh. Oh, and they work hard, too. They work, work very hard. Extremely. And, and I've been visiting at a short-term care facility, and I've been very impressed by the the real um, joy in all of the care workers there. Well, we also have to recognize the economic value of the care work performed for free in households. Correct. And, every uh, every woman is a working woman. Absolutely, and we can. Um, for example, there are studies now showing that if the economic value of that work were included in GDP, it would constitute between 30 to 50% of the reported GDP, but it's ignored. So this is what this work is about. It's about, if you will, uh, really looking at what's real and what's valuable that we know inside of ourselves and then changing the rules of the game. And we can do that. And changing the rules of the game at the legal level, at the law level, at the level of Congress and the Senate, being willing to step in to those places of power and make it the law of the land. And I especially bow to you and thank you for being willing through all of your time here to stand up, to stand up for all of us and to stand up and say, yes, you know, do what you can at home, but get out into the public sphere as well and do what you can there. So Susan, please do so go important. to Rie Ann Eisler's website, and that's R-I-A-N-E-E-I-S-L-E-R, Rianne Eisler, and that is that website is Partnership Way. Yeah, there are two different websites. Okay. One, one is RianneEisler.com, okay. and the other one is CenterForPartnership.org. CenterForPartnership.org. Right. Wonderful, wonderful. And there's so many practical things that every one of us can do, uh, really starting now in a few days with voting. But we have to change the worldview. We have to change the worldview in order to change the world. And we have to show that there is a partnership alternative and that the status of women and children, the majority of humanity, must be addressed because it's foundational. Important to each and every one of us. So I want to remind you all that um, Dr. Eisler started it with a bestseller still in print and in 27 different languages, The Chalice and the Blade, Our History, Our Future. It is recommended reading in my Green Witch Correspondence Course. And this is an absolutely foundational book for any woman who wants to be powerful to understand that her power does not come from domination. It comes from partnership. And first and foremost, it comes from partnership with other women. And you know that a lot of men uh, have written me how 
much they appreciate the partnership configuration because there's a place for them in it. Uh, we're talking about, you know, there are two forms of humanity, basically. We have to include the male form, and there are many more enlightened men now who understand this. So I want to invite both women and men to be partnership uh, transformation agents. And we have courses, by the way, online courses uh, for people who want to do that. Oh, excellent. So you have actually put this down in a way that people can start right now moving themselves into partnership relationships and a partnership economy. Absolutely. Because there are four cornerstones, a childhood, gender, economics, and narratives and language and everything, politics, education, uh, religion flow from those. So we want to shift those from domination to partnership so we don't have these horrible regressions all the time. And every one of us can play a part in this, just as you are, Susan. Yes, in every aspect of our lives, we can come more into partnership with what we're doing rather than having to see it as we have to um, get over on this. We have to be the winner. We have a, a so much ability from right here, right now, to make this possible future happen. Absolutely. And it's exciting. And you also come into contact with such wonderful people when you become part of the partnership movement. Well, I apologize that we got you the wrong phone number, but I am thrilled that you persevered as you have throughout your life and got through to us because although Rebecca and I were having a good time talking about the chalice and the blade and you and how wonderful, incredible, important your work has been to so many of us for so many years and to have it still uh, thriving and growing and blossoming and changing, what a thrill for you. Well, I am so glad that I made it. I love talking with you. And uh, send us the um, the link, and we'll put it in our social media. We have a Facebook page, Rian Eisler Center for Partnership, um, and tweet and all of that. So we'll publicize it, too. Okay, wonderful, so that people can hear more about this partnership model, which is a really brilliant way of being. Thank you, Rian Eisler, Dr. Rian Eisler, for helping me to reweave the healing cloak of the ancients. The threads that you bring to this reweaving are amazing, strong, and important threads that go into the warp, not just the weft of this. And thank you, Rebecca, for you are, your brilliance in um, all aspects of this show and for being here with all of us. You are very, very much appreciated. Herbal medicine as people's medicine, that's what we're doing. Green blessings to everybody.
And thank you and bless you. Thank you, everyone. Good night.